Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Return to Reflection with me, Emma Thayer. With you, Emma Thayer, you're <laughs> back again <laughs> as my special guest. <laughs> Uh, that's correct. I mean, we just uh, mulled over how we were going to do those titles, didn't we? Just yeah. to give you an inside perspective into the magic of uh, podcast creation. Um, uh, so yeah, you've got the introduction from me and now it's more of me talking yeah. about um, some of the things that I have been doing. Again, for my doctorate, for my professional doctorate um, yes. that I've completed the first module for. Hooray! Yay, well done you. I'm not going to talk about my progress at all. <laughs> <laughs> But I haven't got the one hot drink in front of me this time, which is a sign I'm uh, expecting my life to be a bit easier today. Oh, well, I will try my best to be coherent. Um, we have just had a summer break, so I have no excuses <laughs> yes. um, for yes. not being able to string a sentence together. It does take a while to get back up to full speed, though, doesn't it? It does. There is such a thing as holiday head. Mm. Um, so I am going to try my best. I did do um, the, the thing I'm going to talk about today, just for context. I had to do a presentation, a reflective presentation and I did it uh, in August during Ooh. the holiday period so well I I returned from part of my holiday to do this assessment which I passed and just to give you some details on it this component of my first module of the professional doctorate was asking me to reflect um, on what I'd learned from the module but a part of the criteria was to present some of the literature on reflection and to decide and to justify my decisions for my decision on a reflective model to use. Um, So we thought that this might be a useful thing to talk about in an episode on our podcast because for those avid listeners you'll know we had Professor Brendan Cropley on uh, last season to talk more generally and and with, with quite a lot of detail in there about reflection and reflection for teachers he comes from a a sporting background so we talked about reflection from that context so we thought we'd take a deeper dive now and I would talk to you about my reflections on reflection gosh it's like inception isn't it for those of you who've seen that film layers and I'm going to talk to you about one of the reflective models that I decided to use because I think it raises some interesting points about the purpose of reflection and also the reflective stance that we adopt as teachers. Yeah, and as we said when we talked to uh, Professor Brendan a little while ago, and that was a cracking episode and we we got into some quite knotty things, but as we said at the time, it's very easy to talk about being reflective. I mean, even back in the dark ages when I did my PGC, everyone was saying you needed to be a reflective practitioner. And, and, you know, in these sort of performance-based things like sports, they talk about it a lot, but actually doing it is is quite a difficult thing and we present a number of models to our students so there are pieces of research out there that try to lay out the the step-by-step process of how you get through reflection and kind of out the other side with something that you can use and what's really interesting is that there are several different ones and and I don't think I'd kind of entirely realized this until I I dived into it as part of my work here and, and we give a choice of four I mean, they have kind of features in common, don't they? But but then sometimes they're a little bit different number of steps, you know, the way they go around it. So 
I mean, what, what would we say were the kind of common features of reflective models that they, they tend to share? Well, there's usually some kind of descriptive phase, which I suppose is the... If we were if we were doing this on Bloom's taxonomy or we were thinking about how taxing that part of the process is, you know, you'd say that's probably the easiest phase where you're just kind of getting it all out. And it makes me think about something that Judith Neen, um, who was on a previous uh, podcast episode, mentioned. I think she gave it as a something to try, which was to, if you're having a problem with something, to write it down. So the first stage of trying to make sense of something that happened in the classroom would be to just describe it. There's usually some kind of comparative phase where you are comparing how you perceived that incident or or whatever occurred that you're reflecting on with maybe the perspective of someone else, such as a mentor who might be helping you to make sense of it. So there's sort of like that sort of critique phase where you're maybe evaluating or analyzing and unpacking that description and that comparative phase as well might um, be where you're comparing it with what you found in the literature about something that you're reflecting on so let's say for instance um, the incident in question that you're reflecting on was to do with behavior management or behavior for learning and you might do some reading to help make sense of what happened and why it happened so that is the comparative phase and then there's another phase which is the critical phase and here I'm referring to some of the work that I found in the literature this is from a source by Jay and Johnston 2002 that was cited in Duffy 2015 I'm getting all uh, technical because I'm used to presenting this aggressively reeled off there then well done um but yeah there there are the they 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 identify this kind of typology of, of reflective practice which has these three phases and the critical reflective phase is I don't want to say where the magic happens but it's where you can be kind of lifted out of kind of the very subjective and emotional part of of reflection and remove you from the incident as it were so that you can come up with a kind of balanced perspective and you can come up with a way forward so that's the kind of final phase that often occurs in our in the models is the kind of what are you going to do about it what next and where next now, I suppose to the casual listener, if we've got any casual listeners, I don't know if we have, but to the casual listener, that all sounds like an awful lot of work. And I know that this is something that our, our new members of the profession sometimes think when we show them these reflective models. You know, they're quite a big deal. And I suppose it's worth emphasising at this point that, that when we describe or, or, or aspire I suppose to be a reflective practitioner we're not saying that somebody goes through this kind of process every time some little random thing happens you know oh I had a bad lesson today right I better sit down and do a multi-part reflective model because obviously you'd never do anything else would you but it's for those really big kind of knotty problems where perhaps you you sense that you need to solve it properly in order to move forwards or it's it's something that's happening a lot or maybe it's something you don't understand. I mean, we've been doing some planning just lately for a session that we're going to do with our students in this new year and we were trying to think of scenarios, weren't we, where you might want to sit down and reflect on some of this stuff. And I know one of the scenarios we came up with, as you said there, was kind of, you know, management of the class, um, routines, behaviour for learning and stuff like that. But we also had quite an interesting one that we came up with, which was mulling over for example why your 
drama or music students uh, pupils come to you in in their English sets or their maths sets or something like that which will occasionally happen in a school and is usually just for the convenience of the person writing the timetable you know what the implications of that are what does it mean for the way that you plan is it the is it right for the pupils what are the pros and cons and it's knotty questions like that that are really hard to get your head around where that combination of laying it all out without kind of commenting or, or or getting upset about it or whatever and then being led by the hand through that process of reflection can really help you get somewhere yes and it can also take you to a place that causes you to be a bit more metacognitive and that and this is kind of the 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 tougher aspects and this is why you need to take longer over these knottier things that you're reflecting on the metacognitive aspects of reflection um the kind of thinking about your own thinking and reflecting on that process um so i've got another quote here and it's that it's a hierarchical arrangement when we're reflecting that's focused from everyday problems that would be at the sort of the base level of of the hierarchy like sort of thinking and acting in a common sense manner is is reflective all the way up to or towards a metacognitive view that is critical of the act of knowing itself now to to apply that to teaching when you get to that metacognitive state you're maybe being a bit more reflexive and you're thinking well why am i why am I reacting this way to this situation? What's feeding into the way I'm perceiving what happened? What political things might be feeding into it? What's going on in this school context that I've found myself in or that I'm inhabiting at the moment? And how is that feeding into how I'm perceiving what happened and how I'm going to find a way forward? And it's that metacognitive phase that some authors and some practitioners that um, have worked on reflective models they purport that that phase that part of the reflective process is what can be quite emancipatory quite freeing and liberating for a teacher Um, and this is where it gets it gets a little bit controversial I'm going to take a quote from um, the author of the paper that led to the reflective model that I decided to use for for my presentation this comes from Smith um, and the paper is a 1989 paper entitled developing and sustaining critical reflection in teacher education so this is really really specific to teacher education this is another reason why I wanted to try it because I thought you know it's going to be useful for me to gain an insider perspective but it's also potentially going to be useful to my students. So Smith says, how we conceptualise teaching, whether as a set of neutral, value-free technical acts or as a set of ethical, moral and political imperatives, holds important implications for the kind of reflective stance we adopt. And I guess being maybe quite cynical about some of the models that we have have used in the past is that if you view teaching as this kind of neutral value-free technical act then you maybe don't need that phase where you're thinking well why am I going to go forward in this way why am I perceiving it in this way because you know the emphasis is on just do it right because this is how right 
should be. <laughs> yeah, this it's interesting, isn't it? And I'm potentially going to say something a bit, I've got a couple of quite controversial things to say here, but one of them is that there's a very interesting direction of travel over in England at the moment, you know, where, as, as we record this, the government is in the process of kind of putting out there for a tender, for a a kind of academy of, I mean, they call it initial teacher training over there, don't they? Um, an academy that's sort of government approved and is going to really, it sounds to me like cut out the universities or, or radically cut down their role and that just very much whoever tenders to the government and says all the right things is going to come up with a model of initial teacher education that all universities are going to have to abide by, which, if I'm honest, kind of makes me feel that there are a bunch of people at the policy level over the border there who who do see it in a slightly technical way, that there is a right way and a wrong way of doing it. I mean, there's some really disrespectful things kind of out there in the discourse about the role of universities in teacher education over there and we know that Oxford and certainly the Cambridge Oxford and Cambridge um, initial teacher training faculties have basically Mm. turned around and said well if that's your conception of teacher training we're out we'll shut the faculties down which is an absolute bombshell I mean quite apart from anything else we base our model on Oxford's model you know it's a it's a world-leading model and and they have turned around and said well if that's the lie of the land over here we're out yeah absolutely and if we go back to um, a previous episode that we did I think at the start of season three looking at philosophies for for teaching we looked at you said who put out a paper about the intellectual basis of teacher education and one of the kind of features of what they collectively deem to be and purport to be in that paper um, a really healthy teacher education experience is one where you're growing teachers as epistemic agents who are questioning what they see what they do who are empowered and this is another theme that comes through in that smith article is that about you know empowering teachers to reflect on the structural conditions that inform their practice if we really are dedicated to that and we believe that that grows a teacher with agency because it intersects with that notion as well and one who is going to endure in the profession and stay in the profession because we know that's a problem as well then we need teacher education programs that in my opinion that include universities who are able to and it is their remit to create some cognitive dissonance and disruption around existing theories and practices for for the student give them on a basic level give them a context where they can put forward some views on what's going on on the on the school placement that maybe might not go down well with senior leadership And it does need to be a genuine partnership, doesn't it? I mean, I'm going to kind of come at this from the other direction now, Mm, lest mm. there be anybody out there who who would characterise what we've said so far as the idea that, oh, all this reflection, you know, all we have to do with our our, um, initial teacher education students, our student teachers, is to, you know, get them to sit cross-legged on a pole in the wilderness somewhere and reflect, like, you know... This slightly sort of hippie caricature of what we do over here, because clearly that is completely unrealistic. And 
There's a really interesting article out there, actually, which I've brought along with me to this. It's Teacher Coaching in a Simulated Environment. Teacher Coaching in a Simulated Environment by Cohen Wong, Krishnamachari and Berlin. And it's uh, from 2020. And they make the really interesting point, which I I think is a counterpoint or, or a sort of balancing point to all this talk of reflection that we're doing at the moment. They, they did an experiment, basically, in which they found that, that really getting student teachers to just reflect unsupervised was not only quite lacking in efficacy, but it was actually, in some cases, actively unhelpful. And that the missing piece of the puzzle was a coach, an experienced teacher coach uh, and actually they they were using simulations it was kind of computer simulations of classes and they were doing stuff about low level disruption which of course is the thing that, that frightens all new members of the profession and they found that if these student teachers were reflecting just by themselves unsupervised they tended to go down into a real rabbit hole and get really obsessed with the low level disruption and then go into a kind of really bad cul-de-sac of being really punitive with the pupils and really harsh and really negative Whereas when there was an experienced teacher there to coach or a, or a, um, a member of the ITE faculty there to coach who, who had experience of teaching, they were able to sort of direct them slightly to just be a little bit more chilled out about it, to be a bit more kind of de-escalating and a bit, a bit you know, more subtle in their approaches. And I thought that was really interesting, you know, and it's it's a great antidote to this idea that if we all just sit and reflect, we're going to reach some kind of enlightenment. That, that That's not in any way saying that there's not a place for that really experienced teacher in the mix. It's just that it's not as simple as throw them in a room with a teacher and hope something rubs off yeah absolutely and, and and there's no reason why and obviously you know this needs to be handled delicately and this is where ITE tutors come in it, there's no reason why that can't be have reciprocal sort of benefits for mentor and student teacher or coach and coached because that part of the process that is built into Smith's model and the question that he poses that kind of prompts it is how did I come to be like this it's kind of forcing you to think about what's been influential and it maybe could unearth some of the more tacit aspects of the mentor's practice that they haven't questioned themselves or that they just don't voice because maybe they 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 seem obvious or they're so ingrained in what they do that uh, you know they, they they don't necessarily make those clear to a student teacher so you know the the point that you made at the start of the episode about reflection for the the really difficult issues is a really important one but then there is also a balance to be struck with the reflection that and I, and I can understand why that article came arrived at those findings not only because yes they do need to be coached but also at certain stages in your teacher education um, experience and your career, you just feel like you want to be told to do it like this and it will get better. Um, and I can I can really relate to that. So I think, you know, there, there there is a lot of work to be done between schools and universities about the process of reflection and how it can benefit everybody involved and be utilised in a in an effective way and in a, in, a, in a way that has efficacy. But I'm, I am very, very interested in and I would like to understand better how we do support mentors and students to 
have some more difficult conversations that could come out of this. Uh, Tom, you made a really good point about our scenario that we've come up with uh, with our student teachers about setting and classroom groups and as a drama teacher it's usually mixed ability groupings or they come to us in drama in their English sets um, and that you know throws up all kinds of problems and is potentially controversial and I guess what how we've got to see reflection sometimes as well is it's not a once and done occurrence it could be that you you do that reflective cycle and you know you may not necessarily come back to it again formally but that question is percolating throughout your career you know we've both spoken Tom of things that were introduced to us in university on our ITE programs or happened on a school placement that we're only beginning to unlock and and crack now yeah, so we're treading the hard road here, is what we're saying in short. You know, this is not the easy road. Perhaps once upon a time, there was more of a, an apprenticeship model for the training of teachers, you know, just do as I say. I hope that those of our school colleagues who actually work with students who have moved beyond that mini-me kind of approach have found that it's ultimately much more satisfying um, to have that slightly more two-way process in, in which, the, you know, the student is not just taking from the mentor. It's not just take-take all the time. But but in, through that process of reflection, it being a two-way process, they give something back. So for the benefit of, I suppose, those people who are not on our programmes and get to work with our four existing reflective models, perhaps we should lay out this one that you've discovered as part of your EDD work, because it has got um, some quite interesting and quite nice features hasn't it it does okay so it does have some of the features that um, are common to other reflective models so the first phase is the describe phase where you describe and there's a there's a, a, a prompt question what do i do and then the inform phase which is the what does this mean um so there's uh you know an evaluatory and analytical um dimension um, where you're trying to unpack it and I guess that's where perhaps you could be comparing it with a, a coach perspective a mentor's perspective who is you know speaking from a different vantage point in the room when maybe that that thing that you're reflecting on occurred and also that's perhaps where the literature um, could come in and then you've got the confront phase and this is the kind of metacognitive and emancipatory phase that Smith talks about and the question there is as I said earlier how did I come to be like this and I've got a quote here (laughs) what a great question (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, have we all asked ourselves that a couple of times as we started the new term (laughs) Well, it got me thinking, actually, because um, it got me thinking about biases and something that we can inadvertently and um, quite innocently be guilty of when we come into any new scenario is adopting a deficit perspective of our pupils. And we can maybe jump to sort of quick conclusions particularly when we're feeling vulnerable that it wasn't you that was the issue it was the pupils it was everything that they don't have and they're not going to get there because they are this and they are therefore unworkable and you know I I may as well not even try and I'm, I'm, I'm being really sort of Uh, cruel there and putting it in a very basic way um, just to make a point but this 
process can help to address some of those biases. So quoting from Smith again, he says that when teachers write about their own biographies and how they feel these have shaped the construction of their values, then they're able to see more clearly how social and institutional forces beyond the classroom and school have been influential. And this is something that um, I learned about and came to the fore more in my practice when I started working on the Teach First programme. Teach First is uh, a model that is a kind of school direct model or is on the job training. Um, they take they are a charity and they are very much driven by a kind of socioeconomic agenda and wishing to address the, the poverty gap. Very dedicated and committed to that and they're, they're developing teachers um, and leaders um, to feed into that agenda. And this is something that they do really well on the programme because at the start of the programme, they ask students to kind of really try and unearth some of these biographies that have shaped their values very early on and bring them sort of to the fore and get them to sort of unpack how they've come to be that way, but to also show how other contextual factors will feed into that kind of value system that emerges and that will eventually feed into their philosophy for teaching learning and will therefore drive their practice so that's why this confront bit this how did I come to be like this bit I think was really important and that confront bit, I mean, even the, even the name of it sounds a little bit scary, to be honest, like something you don't want to be doing when, you, when you're not at your best. Um, that sounds like the bit where if, if you're particularly you're early on in your career, you might really need some help with that because we've made a huge step there from just describing the situation, which, you know, you could do yourself, I suppose, as a teacher to kind of saying, well, what does this mean? Well, you, you could probably have a pretty good stab at that as well, um, particularly if you've had some feedback, you know, just some basic lesson feedback or that sort of thing. But then to jump up to those kind of multiple perspectives and all of those sort of things feeding in that feels like a really really big step up and something that is maybe not a thought process that's going to be done and dusted in in a short period of time but maybe something you're going to have to return to and do and maybe come back to when you discover new things or new perspectives and I certainly would would envisage that as being an area where you might need some help and some coaching maybe from more than one source. Yes um, and thankfully what Smith had done before he put together this article obviously he was formulating his his own theories that fed into this model was he came up with some uh, a series of guiding questions for the confront phase to provide even more structure and um, what he says is it, it, it helps teachers approach the com- confrontation of local theories of teaching so some of them are quite interesting what do my practices say about my assumptions values and beliefs about teaching where did these ideas come from what social practices are expressed in these ideas What is it that causes me to maintain my theories? What views of power do they embody? So this is where this kind of emancipatory ethical thread is coming through. Whose interests seem to be served by my practices? There's a question. (laughs) And what is it that acts to constrain my views of what is possible in teaching? Now, just going back to that, that, that controversial one, whose interests seem to be served. And this is where the role of the mentor and applying this in the context of teacher education is tricky because a student teacher could legitimately say 
well mentor your your interests really because you're marking me (laughs) so I'm going to do it that way because you told me so you know this this step needs to be handled carefully and as you said we probably need to do more work in in supporting mentors to do this yeah I've read an interesting article which kind of implied that in some situations student teachers will (laughs) understandably say what they think they want their mentor wants to hear and say what they think their university tutor wants to hear and those things may be entirely different things I mean the other ones that really interested me in that I mean the first question what do my practices say about my assumptions values and beliefs now I touched on this with Judith a couple of episodes ago there's a load of literature out there that says that our our assumptions values and beliefs about teaching um, in a lot of cases come from the way we were taught ourselves and that it's very very hard to shift those they they really really kind of stick and that stuff about views of power as well I think I told you didn't I when we we talked about my research that Ruth Wright formerly of this fine institution now over in Canada told me that sociology was a really big kind of rabbit hole that that would be well worth going into and then she's written some really interesting stuff about kind of power dynamics in the classroom and you know how do we how do we sort of disrupt those and all of that so these are really really big questions aren't they and really interesting questions and not ones with short and simple answers no but i, I it struck me that you know <sighs> I don't want to say now more than ever because any at any point in history that I mean this was 1989 that this was written but it feels quite apposite now because we like if I speak from a drama perspective thinking about things like decolonizing the curriculum and you know the sort of anti-racist agenda I didn't even want to refer to it as an agenda that just doesn't feel like the right phrase but some of the questions that we're asking of ourselves as as teachers and teacher educators in solving some of these issues and in working in a way that is has equity and developing curriculums that are representative etc all of those very difficult to solve no easy answer scenarios that we're faced with all the time in education it may be models like this will hold our hands a little bit more firmly through that difficult bit if we've got something to hang it on and a framework to guide that process then then maybe we'll we'll feel more confident in in addressing it i mean he he makes a good point at the end of um the short chapter about this part of the model he says untangling and reevaluating taken for granted even cherished practices require breaking into well entrenched and constructive mythologies that may not always be easily dislodged yeah, and funnily enough, from the detritus of my desk, I've just <laughs> I've just dug up a Ruth Wright article, the fourth sociology and music education um, from Action Criticism and Theory for Music Education, two thousand and fourteen, in which she kind of sets out this idea of there being entrenched power dynamics and you know inequalities between teachers and pupils and tries to set out a model I mean obviously it's subject specific so it may only potentially be interested of interest to those of us who work in the performing arts although I'm sure there are parallels and um, ways of disrupting or interrupting as she puts it um the rational community um in order to give the students agency now I mean it may be that as a, as a teacher maybe you, you kind of not entirely comfortable with that thought but it's it's certainly something to think about you know just something to think about those 
things that are kind of taken for granted in terms of the classroom dynamics and whether they serve the the kind of purposes that you want in your classroom and there's loads of really interesting stuff out here and emancipation and all of that is mentioned but in in the context of emancipating our pupils yes and that idea of emancipation and empowerment as well I think perhaps could go some way towards galvanizing teachers in the profession who feel that they are often the butt of media jokes sometimes and, and, and at a sharp end of the blame game that goes on in education and uh, you know I think we, we are in a, a real sweet spot for for reprofessionalizing you know the, the agenda to make uh, teaching a master's level profession and to respect um, teachers time so that they can inquire into their own practice giving them research tools skills knowledge understanding you know and this is why that market review kind of flies in the face of 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 that of, of all of that really good stuff that that seems to be going on but um yeah just just a, a a final quote i guess from smith which um comes through in in the final phase which is the reconstructing phase which has got a little question to accompany it which is how might i do things differently so that's the phase that is is often in one of the models he says that when teachers are able to begin to link consciousness about the processes that inform the day-to-day aspects of their teaching with the wider political and social realities within which it occurs then they are able to transcend self-blame which I really like um, for things that don't work out and to see that perhaps their causation may more properly lie in the social injustices and palpable injustices of society which is to say that deficiencies in teaching can be caused by the manner in which dominant groups in society pursue their narrow sectional interests. And if that hasn't sold it to you, whatever's going to. I suppose what we could do at this point is is make sure that we put some goodies in the episode notes here, because I suppose yeah. we've got this reflective model, which yeah. is set out in this article. We've got another four that we use with our students. They're all great. They're all different. Um, I suppose, you know, Brendan Cropley back in the other episode kind of makes the point that, you know, not to get too hung up about some of these sorts of things. And perhaps if you've come on this episode, which is a really deep dive into a single reflective model and are a little bit all at sea, perhaps the thing to do would be to just to skip back to last year. Um, and have a listen to what Professor Brendan has to say, because in that we sort of set out uh, reflection in the slightly broader brushstrokes and what it might look like for serving teachers and things like that. And then perhaps this really deep dive into a reflective model uh, and what it, what the implications might be perhaps makes a little bit more sense. But I mean, that's really interesting. And there's there's loads to kind of... Uh, get you thinking on that isn't it it's just always the problem is carving out the time and space to actually do that deep thinking Mm, I mean even if you just give some of those questions a try and uh, you know just just be aware that your perspective on the situation is is one thing but there are bigger things at play that might be you know just just a final point about what you said Tom about what our students come to us being influenced by and a a common phrase that we hear from applicants to the program is that I want to be a drama or music teacher because my drama music teacher didn't do a great job and maybe they'll give a little bit of pause for thought to 
maybe what politically was going on, socially was going on, culturally was going on at the time for their teacher at the time that meant that they behaved that way, you know, rightly or wrongly. But maybe they'll look back with a slightly different perspective as well. So, yeah, those are my final thoughts. (laughs) There we go. So a deep dive into some reflection and perhaps we'd better kind of lighten up with a few short slots. Yeah. um... (laughs) Which we haven't prepared. (laughs) thinking on the hoof here so this this one has literally come to me straight away because i i I, and and it's not really education related but it's it's just interesting there's a film that is currently accessible on netflix possibly other places um called worth and it's because it's a big anniversary this year of the 9-11 attacks and the film, and I'm really thinking off the top of my head now, I watched most of it last night. I haven't even finished watching the whole thing, but it really grabbed me. And the film focuses in on um, a lawyer uh, in America who, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, has to come up with, by decree of the government, a figure or a formula that produces a figure of compensation for victims and their families of 9-11 and it's kind of a, a payout really it's it's blood money putting it cruelly to prevent them from suing the airlines um, suing anybody uh, they've deemed responsible for the death of, uh, of their loved one and it just throws up this incredible ethical moral question about worth because they get they get into kind of issues of well you know we had janitors who were in the two towers and the pentagon um and on the planes and and we also had ceos and everyone's got their own sort of agenda and everybody's reason and rationale you know and all the kind of intersectional complexities of how you arrive at that figure get laid out on the table in this film and I just found it absolutely fascinating and it's very well acted some some great performances and very well written so I I would recommend that I found it really interesting and I suppose this episode contains things to try doesn't it I think so you're giving me an easy get out there yeah I would definitely try um, a, a, a reflective model or at least have a look at some and and now perhaps in light of the two episodes we put out on reflection to to make some comparisons about about the two and which one you think is going to be most useful i think my instinct is that if i was um still in school at the moment some of those questions in the confront phase you know what do my practices say about my assumptions values and beliefs uh, you know what views of power do they, they embody if you've got the right colleague um mm. and a good enough cup of tea and a nice quiet space and a comfy chair that could could result in a really really interesting conversation that could really lead to some very interesting things indeed it's certainly the sort of conversation that I would relish having um with colleagues a sort of conversation you and I tend to have but then maybe we're just a bit strange (laughs) (laughs) it's good to keep talking we talk about survival cuppers maybe extend your survival cupper to survival reflective conversation (laughs) yeah get your kettle on and start confronting right I'm going to release you from this uh fantastic piece of work that you've done thank you for for being um, our special guest this episode. (laughs) 
It was my pleasure. <laughs> um, I have not committed to a, a return visit by me as yet because I'm in the depths of writing up, but uh, I'm sure I'll get dragged in front of a mic at some point. Oh, you will. And we'll be back in a fortnight. We'll be back soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. And the special guest this episode was also Emma, multitasking fantastically. So thanks to Emma for coming back and talking about her continuing research. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We'll be back in your ears in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.